This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. As the school year came to an end last June, Education Next did a representative survey from across the United States. And according to the parents that participated in the survey, about half of all US children were attending school full-time in person, but another half were either learning online or splitting their time between in-person and online learning, something that's called the hybrid approach. Parents reported higher rates of learning loss if they were not going to school full-time in the classroom. Half of the children learning in person were said to be suffering learning loss by their parents. So it wasn't like it was good for them. Half of them were, were admitting that there was a loss even if the child was in the classroom. But the situation was worse for those said to be learning online or in the hybrid condition. For them, two thirds were said to be learning less. But these are parent reports. Do parents actually know whether their children are learning less this year than last year? Well, now some hard data from student test score performance has become available. Four scholars at Brown University have done a careful study that looks at the passing rate on state accountability exams in math and reading in 12 states. It shows that the parents are not so dumb after all. What they say about their children is probably true. I have with me on the Education Exchange today one of the authors of this report, Emily Oster, an economist at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. She's the author of a new book entitled The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to Better Decision-Making in the Early School Years. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about her latest report. So thank you, Emily, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Emily, let's cut to the quick. In the 12 states you studied, did students learn less if they learned online last year? They did. So when we look at these 12 states, we see on average across all of the learners across the states, there's a, about a 14 percentage point drop in pass rates. So that's a very large drop, given that typically there's not a lot of variation in, in these passing rates from year to year. But what we see is that if a district moved from fully in-person, so in the sense of offering full-time in-person learning for the entire year, to fully something else, so fully hybrid or fully virtual, the data suggests that, that that difference in test score loss is about 10 percentage points. So it really suggests that the learning losses, the test score losses at least, are much, much larger uh, in districts that did not have access, among students rather, in districts that did not have access to in-person learning. Well, was it um, the same for all students or was there a greater learning loss for the disadvantaged students? So there's a there's a bit of subtlety to, to the answer there. So there's actually sort of two, two things going on when we look across demographics. One is that uh, is that students who are disadvantaged are were less likely to have access to in-person learning. So if we look at who was able to access in-person learning, that is more common among white students. It's more common among students who are living in districts with higher baseline pass rates. It's more common among students who live in districts with, uh, with fewer students eligible for free and reduced price lunch. So in general, more advantaged students had more access to in-person learning. So to the extent that uh, virtual learning was, was worse, though that would further disadvantage students who are already more vulnerable. In addition, what we see is particularly in English language arts, um, 
there's actually a greater disadvantage to virtual learning among students of color. So it's both that they are more likely to have only access to virtual learning and that, that in those districts, virtual learning was relatively worse. So it's a little bit of a, of a double whammy there. Well, without becoming too technical, because I know it's a very carefully done paper that uh, you have produced here, but how do you measure learning loss? How, how did you sort of isolate uh, what was going on? And so what we do in the what we do in the paper is we combine sort of two sources of data. So in terms of learning data, we use state level test scores. So states, not all states, but some states last year uh, gave their students the sort of standard end of the year uh, tests. And so we have pass rates and we have pass rates in the, the 2021 school year and then pass rates in prior school years to compare them to. The bigger challenge was actually the part of the data about what kind of learning mode students were in. So that was data was not collected systematically. So the, the precursor project to this paper is a, a data effort in which we worked with state education agencies to produce uh, a record of who had access to in-person learning last year at either the school or the district level. So we got that data for these states and then we combined it with the test score data. So we were able to look effectively at whether the declines in scores are larger between the pre-pandemic and the pandemic school year for districts that had less in-person learning. So how do you know that you're measuring differences in in-person versus the other forms, hybrid or, or totally online, and not something else? I mean, there was lots of other stuff going on at the same time out there. So could yeah. that and varying in the same way? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's the biggest challenge for, for a paper like this, right? So, so kind of, is it the schooling or is it the other, the other stuff? I mean, certainly there was a lot, there's a lot going on and, you know, one very facile thing is to say, well, you know, isn't it just the, isn't it just the, the pandemic? Isn't it the disease environment in practice? You know, that, that, is probably not a lot of what's going on in this, at least in this sort of very narrow sense of, of cases, because actually the, the districts that were had higher cases were more likely to be open. So because of the politics of reopening, the states and districts with more uh, cases also turned out to be the states and, case, states and districts with more reopening. So the more COVID you have, the more likely you will be meeting in person at school? That's right. Yeah. And it turns out like basically what goes like the, the sort of the underlying thing is that that a very strong predictor of opening is Republican vote share. So both across and within states or st districts with Republican uh, high Republican vote share is more likely to open their schools, but they're also more likely to open a lot of other stuff like their bars. Uh, and that turned out to, to sort of mean that the kind of the pandemic didn't line up like that. What I think is is a sort of more complicated question is. The places that had closed schools also had more lockdowns. They had greater unemployment rates. There's all kinds of other stuff going on in the economy in those areas. And you might have, have thought, you know, well, is it those things and not the schools that are affecting kids? And it's hard for us to really fully rule that out. What I will say is um, in some of the robustness checks we're working on now, we're actually able to look uh, within a commuting zone. So like within a sort of relatively small labor market, and within some of those commuting zones, there would be districts that were open more and open less. And we actually see very similar results, even if we restrict to within commuting zone variation. So I think that suggests that it is more likely that the, the schooling matters rather than, say, the unemployment rate or the labor market conditions. 
Well, that's very interesting uh, because that sort of gets at one thing. But how about the parents? You know, it may be that some parents want their kids to go to school because they are really committed to that and they're going to make sure their kids learn. So is that could that be an alternative explanation? So the, the variation that we are using in this paper is access, is what you had access to, not what you did. In some ways, it would be great if we had individual level test scores because we could do a lot more and we could sort of see a lot more about who's doing better and, and so on. But the variation that we would still want to use is probably what people had access to. And so really what we're focused on here is what we're saying is that the districts where people had access to in-person learning, whether or not they opted into that, uh, are doing better. In practice, when a district had access to in-person learning, more of their students went to in-person learning, um, obviously, than if they, they did not have access to it. But you could also make the claim, well, okay, so parents are pressing the schools to open them up or not. And those parents in those communities who want to have their kids well-educated are the ones who are insisting that the schools be open. Is that a possibility? Yeah, it's, so it's, it, um, it's interesting. Yes, it's possible. You know, you might have thought that that would, that if it was something sort of fixed about the parents like that, like sort of their interest in in education and, and so on, that you would also see other differences over the sort of pre-pandemic period, that you would see those places being places with more growth in test scores in the in the pre-pandemic. And we kind of don't, we kind of don't see that. So, you know, it's a it's a, a little bit hard with data like this to say, you know, yes, for sure, this is it is all about the opening motive of schools. Um, I, you know, I think in some ways that's the most obvious explanation. And I think, you know, particularly given how much the reopening decisions appeared to line up along effectively political lines and not so much along the lines of kind of what parents were ad advocating for, um, that is something that I'm less worried about. But there's like, of course, I'm less worried about it. It's my paper, right? Yeah, we hate to think that politics affects important decisions, but sure is neat for researchers because then you you solve a lot of problems. You can actually study if something uh, makes a difference. Exactly. Yes, we hate there to be randomness except when we're doing research and then we like the randomness. So, um, well, what sites did you study? So the states in this data are in the in the uh, paper are Virginia, Minnesota, Massachusetts, Nevada, West Virginia, Colorado, Ohio, Wisconsin, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Wyoming, and Florida. Well, that's a lot of states. There, that's twelve states. Right, 12 there's states. another, you know, thirty-eight states out there. Why didn't you study them? So there's a few different reasons. So one is there's a couple that we're adding, Mississippi and Arizona, um, that we just hadn't had the data yet for. Um, one barrier is that for some states, we don't have data on school reopening mode. So actually a place like Pennsylvania, actually they don't have any records of what their schools, which schools were open in what mode over the course of the school year. So there's no way to do this kind of analysis. The other piece of it is that actually a lot of states either didn't, didn't do these tests at the end of the school year, or they did them, but their participation was so poor, was so low that it's basically impossible to analyze them. So New York had some testing at the end of the year, participation rate was about 40%. You can't really analyze when you're only seeing 40% of the, of the students. So we limit it to states where we have, you know, very high participation rates. Um, well, so uh, that's, that's, you did what you could, obviously. We did what we could, that's what we got. But, but how about generalizing from the states that did look at what you tend to be smaller states. I mean, you don't have California or New York or New Jersey or Washington. Uh, you know, there's a lot of big states out there that aren't in your study. Do you, do you think there's a, it, how, how confident 
argue that you can generalize to a larger population? You know, I'm not sure. So I say sort of a couple of things about that. So, so, you know, one is I'm not sure why the size of the state would be especially relevant um, to the sort of size of this effect. I mean, it could be, I just don't, you know, that isn't, doesn't strike me as a sort of obvious, um, as an obvious confound. I will also say when we look across states, actually we're seeing versions that like sort of the, the directional of the effect is basically the same in every state. So it's not that we're seeing, you know, some state, like we're seeing a pretty consistent, they're different sizes, um, but we're seeing quite consistent uh, effects of, of in-person learning versus other things across all of these states, which suggests to me is potentially more general, more generalizable. Um, but, you know, in a study like this, you always kind of worry about external external validity. California has said they will be releasing their test score data in early December. Um, and as we do this interview, it is early December. So we are eagerly refreshing their webpage every day to find out when they release it. Yeah, well, that'll be fun to see uh, what happens in California. A lot of people are talking about what's going on in California. Uh, but um, now the number of students participating in the testing this year in 2020, 20, 2021 school year was, was quite a bit less than in previous years, um, even in these states that you looked at. So do you, so that's going to change the, the picture. You're not comparing apples to apples here. And the question comes up, are you overestimating this problem or are you underestimating this problem? Because I could see an argument either way. So it, really the, the sort of question there comes down to here, you know, again, I think you're exactly right. We're seeing loss, we're seeing drops in participation. So it's sort of typically these tests without participation rates like 99%. Um, and, you know, in a bunch of these states, we're seeing participation, you know, 90, 90%, 92%, you know, so it's not 80, it's not 50%, um, but it's, it's not, it's not hundred percent. And so then the question is, you know, who is not participating? That's really what we want to, to address. When you look across demographics, what we are seeing in the data is that the students who are not participating tend to be um, the students who we'd expect to perform worse on the test. So it's more like, so we're seeing bigger drops in participation in English language learners and kids who are in special ed, uh, in students in districts who are, um, who are sort of otherwise um, would be, have been performing more poorly. That would suggest that actually, you know, if that sort of pattern held up, that would suggest that actually we're potentially underestimating uh, the size of these, uh, the size of these declines and the impacts of, of virtual learning. In the paper, what we do is we try to be a little bit agnostic about bounds. Um, and so this has um, been updated. Bounds. What, what do you mean by bounds? I know yeah, so, that word bounds, but, but our right. audience needs to be told what you mean by that. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's kind of two, two, there's two extremes. So bounds really just another way of talking about extremes, right? So there's sort of two extreme things that could happen. If you have like 8% of the people who didn't participate, the most extreme, one extreme is they could have all failed. And another extreme is they could have all passed, right? So we just have a binary thing. It's just, did you pass or not? So we could have an additional 8% that failed or we have additional 8% who passed. And so what we do in the, um, in, the, in the current version of the paper is we look at what would, our, uh, what would these learning losses look like? What would these effects of virtual learning look like if we assumed one of those two things? And in fact, what we find is even if you take the kind of most extreme, um, the most extreme case sort of against the learning loss, even if you assume that everybody would, who was not tested would have passed, 
which again, I think is pretty inconsistent with the reality of sort of who we see not tested. But even if you take that extreme assumption, we're still actually seeing uh, reasonably sized test score losses and larger losses in places that are, um, that are uh, having more virtual learning. Well, I notice here that um, you see bigger effects on math and on reading. In fact, among white students, I don't think you saw a significant decline in reading. You did see it for non-white students, but, um, but in math, you found it for everybody and it was a bigger effect in math. So why such a big effect in math and, and not so much of a big, you know, not less effect in reading? So that result is consistent with what we'd see, for example, in um, some of the charter school kind of papers, um, which is that we just generally see that school seems to matter more for math performance than for than for ELA performance. Um, just that like math math scores are more flexible around these kind of changes. I'm not sure that's my guess is that is something like that is what's going on. Uh, what's going on here. I don't know precisely, um, sort of precisely what the mechanism is. I have like kind of speculation, which is that, you know, it may be easier for, for parents to scaffold the kind of learning in English relative to math, because in part, the way we ask kids to do math these days is actually pretty specific. And so it may be hard for me to, to sort of help my kid learn that, whereas learning, you know, helping them with reading is something many parents know how to do. So I think it's a, um, that, but that's largely just, just speculative. I think this is in line with what we've seen in other in other settings about how responsive these two kinds of scores are to different inputs. Well, I think more parents read to their children than do math problems for their children or help them with math problems. I just think it's more That's fun. That's true in my house for problems. sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> or my grandchildren. Right? Yeah. So now, uh, but tell me, um, what do you think are the policy implications of all of this? What's what do you conclude? What do you infer from what you've learned? So I think I would take sort of two things. Um, you know, one, and I think we already kind of know this thing, this really reinforces, you know, there, there's a lot of work to be done over the next, not just the next, you know, six months, or but really over the next several years in terms of ameliorating these learning losses. You know, I don't think we'll see I think we'll see some continuation of this through the next school year. I don't think it's going to be as, as extreme. I certainly hope not. Um, but it's going to take some time to, to, to recover this. And we're going to need to continue to have thoughtfully used resources to try to, to, try to do that. And so I think to the extent that we see that these losses are larger in places that were, that were um, less in person, uh, it suggests something about targeting and that those, you know, those may be districts that are going to need um, you know, more resources, more help. Uh, than than others, so I think that's kind of one one piece of it. I think the other piece is that you know honestly, in there's still discussion about moving to virtual learning uh, some of the time. You know, we're starting to see school districts move to four days a week in like a like a regularly, um, and you know make changes that are sort of start talking about you know is this. Um, you know, should we close schools for a few weeks? And it's like, I think this really suggests that's that's really costly um, and that that should not be our first line of defense, particularly because it does not seem to affect the COVID rates. Um, but, you know, th so there's a sort of like, I don't know what the benefit would be, but it certainly seems like the costs are big. Well, you know, I, I one thing you find, and we also found this with, when we asked parents, is that it didn't make any difference if it was total online learning or if it was hybrid or split, you know, two days, three days, whatever. Uh, if you didn't go to school full time, it, all the other alternatives seem to be harmful for the education of the children. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that there's a there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of regular school and then there's other stuff and other stuff. You know, I think we had a lot of there was a lot of hope around the idea of hybrid learning, but it just turns out that's really hard to manage. It's hard for people to manage. It's kind of not the stability and consistency that kids that that kids needed. So maybe there's a reason why schools have always met five days a week. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe it was the reason we <laughs> came up with People just that. sort of knew this intuitively. <laughs> now, in some European countries, I think it's true in Sweden, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but some European, they didn't really do much closing of schools. The United States was more ready to close its schools than a lot of countries out there. So Sweden is an outlier in terms of effectively not closing them at all. So they did, basically didn't close schools even in the spring of 2020. Um, almost all the European, the other European countries did close their schools in the spring of 2020, but they largely opened them, um, you know, even as early as the summer of 2020. And then certainly through the, through the school year last year. So they've been sort of like, there's been some, you know, in and out at various times with lockdowns, but by and large, you know, that's been, um, you know, kids have been in school. And I think another way to see that is it really was a priority. So in a lot of European countries, they really did put schools in a sort of like, they should be the last thing to close and the first thing to open. And so, you know, we're going to have schools even when we are not having virtually anything, but anything else. Whereas in the U.S., we didn't really take that tack. And so there were places that schools were open, but everything else was also open. And then there were places where schools were closed, even while other things were, were open. And so, so we just, we sort of didn't prioritize schools in the way that I think some of us thought we should have. So, yeah, no, it does make the case for saying, uh, close your schools last, not first. Yes. Uh, that's what I think is one of the sort of, you know, simple, basic storylines that e emerges from this. But now some people are claiming that these losses are going to be temporary. I, I just heard a very well-known economist, education economist even, uh, claim that students are going to make up this loss, that this is zero, you lose something this year, you'll make it up next year. Is there any evidence for that proposition? You know, I think that there, there isn't any particular evidence for that. I, I think it is likely that some of this will be, some reasonable share of this will be, will be made up, um, you know, in part because it seems unlikely that we're going to end up with a 14 percentage point drop in, in math. And, you know, once you've got kids in school and you can start sort of scaffolding them and kind of supporting their learning and backfilling, you know, we're likely to make up some of that. I think what, what I think is, is probably not right is that, you know, I don't think it's right to say that this will all be made up and that, you know, this will just be a blip and we will never kind of hear about this, hear about this again. My guess is these losses will, um, will persist in some form or parts of this will persist in some form more or less, more or less forever. And I, you know, exactly what way that will, that will come out. I think we're just going to have to see. Well, there are some studies out there that show that uh, wartime uh, depresses uh, what happens for the generation that's right in school at the, at the bad moment uh, really has a negative effect uh, when schools close during wartime and also strikes, prolonged strikes in uh, Latin America had downstream consequences. So this, there's, there's some evidence out there that the long-term effects uh, can be detected uh, and they're negative. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing we may see is, you know, to the extent that that for some high school students, the move to virtual learning was pretty much a move to leaving. Um, you know, we could see uh, we could start to see sort of more that basically just people who forever have lower educational attainment because they kind of leave the uh, leave the schooling system and don't return. 
Well, I hate to end up with a technical question, but I, I, did, I was going to ask you a question about the passing rates. They're different from one state to another. The, the standards vary. You know, uh, some states have very high standards for you to pass and some have low standards. How can you combine this all into one study? You know, I mean, there it's a, it's a good question, and there's probably different things we could do about sort of standardizing the pass rates. I think that the approach we wanted to take was basically to, to sort of show the data as it is and say, look, we're combining them. And yeah, that's assuming that kind of the, the a percentage point change in pass rate is sort of similar, but also let me show you how this varies across um, you know, let me show you the effect within different different states, um, and kind of try to try to be just like very visual about about the the data, and then people can sort of look and and maybe pick out a little bit for themselves. Like, okay, I'd rather take this number than than this number, which is okay. Yeah, no, I think you the fact that every state suffered yeah. a loss, right? That sort of you know uh, seals the deal. I think. I think that 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 for me that was pretty that was that was pretty compelling. Like the one place we see the very tiny losses is Wyoming, because effectively nobody is it's nobody's virtual in Wyoming. So, but then then there is Virginia. Everybody's interested in Virginia yeah. these days because uh, they the politics got involved there, and uh, everybody is blaming uh, the 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 victory uh, for the Republican on the fact that the schools became the issue. And your report shows that I think Virginia is an outlier in, in certain Huge outlier, particularly in math. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that, actually, like the sort of the losses in Virginia in math are really, really big. Um, they're way, you know, they're way outside everybody else. And, you know, we dug into this a lot. And, you know, is this something like, is there a change in the test? Like it was sort of so large that that it seemed like there might be something else going on, but I think it just, you know, and just turns out, I don't know, the test score losses are, are really big. And that is, a, you know, that is a state with, that had, you know, huge amount of, uh, you know, huge amount of virtual learning. It's among the very lowest states in terms of in-personness. This is part of the reason I'd be very eager, I'm very eager to get the California data because California had, is probably the state in the nation with the lowest amount of in-person schooling over the last uh, over the last year or so. So sort of seeing what, what happened there to their test scores will be an interesting thing to add. And the opposite is Florida. Florida hardly closed and uh, didn't suffer much of a learning loss. Nope. Florida, Wyoming, those places are kind of showing very little learning losses and they were more or less fully open the whole time. A lot of COVID. So all of this is a really important uh, study. I think, uh, Emily, I, I just think that uh, really getting on top of this early on and at a time when policymakers can still uh, respond to some extent uh, on the basis of hard evidence. Uh, I think it's important that uh, what you have uh, shared with us. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Emily Oster, an author of a just released report on learning loss when students are excluded from the classroom. She is an economist at Brown University and author of a 2021 book entitled The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.